0: I was a little boy that was raised in church. I think the very first place I was ever taken to, in fact, I know, the very first place that I was taken to was to church and in the infantry as a church, as a a child. Uh, I've mentioned that I loved, they had over the top of the door at First Baptist, um, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed uh, in the infantry. And that was the first place that, I went to, my dad was the custodian. My job when I was four years old was to take the pew mop and to go up and down through the pews. And uh, that was my job at, uh, at four and five years old. I remember grabbing the buffer one time at about eight years old and uh, the big buffer that my dad would use to, to buff out the, the linoleum. Uh, I had an e-ticket ride, for those of you that remember e-tickets, as I went flying down the, the hallway. When I was a boy growing up, we heard a lot about heaven. We heard a lot about the fact that when we died, we went to heaven. Cindy and I have been around a lot of the funerals lately, Stan's funeral, Jeff's mom, uh, Linda's dad. And we were talking the other day, just as we were driving home, uh, the illustration that Cindy would like to have as a part of her funeral. And she was saying to me, you know, honey, I want you to do this. And I said, I'm not doing your funeral. I'll be the guy in the front row going, (laughs) you know, no way. Morbid things. Uh, Husband's wife's talking. But the thing about heaven was it confused me. I was looking this week for a little video clip, and I couldn't find it. But it was one of the Looney Tune cartoons, and hey, that's where I based my theology as a kid was on Looney Tune. <laughs> and it was uh, one of the characters. It was usually a bad guy. He was usually a criminal, and he was a bulldog. And he sort of had an unshaven face, and he, he would smoke this stub of a cigar. Remember him? Somebody remember? I see the heads going on. Well, there's one scene where he gets blown up or whatever, and, and he's up in heaven, and there is this rough-looking, scruffy guy in heaven with a cigar sticking out of his mouth with white robes on, sitting on a cloud, playing a harp. And I can remember as a kid thinking, if that's heaven... I'm not sure I want to go. It sounded so boring. I remember as a kid thinking heaven was one long church service. Now I love church services. In fact, some of the funerals lately, we've been singing a lot of the old hymns. I grew up with the hymns. I love the hymns. You know, I take pride in the fact that I don't need the hymn book. I'm gonna put it down. And remember the verses. But the thought of living eternity in a church service was terrifying. You know, I was bored most of the time in church. As I got a little older, worship became more an important part of my life, and I value it. But the thought of being forever, somehow sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, just made no sense to me. I started studying heaven about several years ago and uh, as I got more and more into what the scripture really says about it, it was no longer a place of just one long eternal worship service. But it became a place of incredible opportunity, incredible activity. The more I began to understand what God talks about when he talks about eternity I began to realize that there's so much more there than we understand as I grew older and faced death in our own family and my parents and Cindy's parents, a daughter that died, as I grew older and, and began to look at the things that were around me, I began to understand that there is a longing for something more in my soul it just screams out. When I look at the shortness of life, it doesn't seem short, but when you're getting closer to 60, it sure seems shorter and shorter. Those of you who are older than that, you, you look back and you say, where did it all go? And I want more. There are times when Cindy and I are arguing and and I think, boy, I just wish there was something more in our relationship. And there are times that we are incredibly close. And even then, I feel a longing in my heart that says, I wish there was more. When I look at the injustice that surrounds us, the ways the world just isn't fair. And I'll be honest, I get angry sometimes. But inside, there's just a cry that says, God, I want more. My soul longs for so much more. That idea, that reality, when people are willing to be honest with the fact that the world just does not satisfy fully, I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how perfect your relationships are. They're not, by the way. I don't care how powerful you are. I don't care about any of that. None of that is going to be fully satisfying of your soul. And in the quietness of solitude or, or, or thought or meditation and thinking of God's word and all that's there, there's a part of us that says, I want more. I have known in my life a few people that live their life with that knowledge in a way that has made their lives profound. For they understand that living this life for the believer is living in eternity. And eternity is not something that begins when I die. Eternity in the sense of living in the presence of God, now by faith, eventually by sight, is something that is my whole life. I lose sight of that. I lose sight of that in the the monotony of life. I lose sight of that in the excitement of life. every so often I find people who know what it means to live as eternal creatures. Paul in Philippians chapter 3, as we've been making our way through, comes to that idea, and it becomes essential in living out a faithful life as a believer. And what he wants us to understand is that faithfulness is strengthening by our relationship with those who live for eternity. By finding those in relationship finding those that I can follow their example, finding those that I can emulate, that understand that as I live this life, there really is an eternal purpose. There really is more. That this is just the foretaste. This is just the appetizer. This is just the beginning. C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever read The Last Battle. And as he envisions heaven, the phrase is farther in and farther up, and each time they move to a new level, as they move sort of inside, the inside is bigger than what they just experienced. And as C.S. Lewis is writing that, his his focus is this idea, there's always more always more, always greater, always more wonder, to the point that we will never, on this side of the veil, really comprehend. We can understand it, but not fully comprehend. And finding those that live life with that kind of mentality, as we come here to, uh, to Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to pick up in verse 20. The translators do a good job here, but as they begin verse 20, they begin it with this little conjunction, but, and there's sort of a sense of contrast. And that's okay, there's a reason why they translate it that way, but literally, the word there is not but, it's for. This reason. That's the idea. Do it because of this reason. And the question becomes, do what? And we have to go back to verse 17 where Paul says, join with others in following my examples, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. And he says, I want you to notice those in your life that are good examples of what it means to live out this Christian life. None of them are perfect. but there are some in the community in which we live that that grab on to these truths and it becomes a part of their lives and i want to be like them and again as i've said several times some are older than me some are younger but paul says take a look at those and follow their example and the first four was found there in verse 8 in verse um 18, where he says, I have told you about those who live in opposition to the cross. Look at those who really follow Christ and follow their example because there are some that are terrible examples, whose God is their stomach, whose whose shame is their honor. Because of that, be careful who you seek to emulate. But now he gives a second reason, and it's this. Find those you can emulate in your life, because this life isn't all there is. And find those that know what it's like to live that way. That's where the four goes back to. There are some who know what it's like to live with eternity on their mind. And know what it's like to live in eternity. And so Paul says we are motivated to faithfulness by following the example of those who live in eternity. Who understand there's more. And live their lives that way now paul will describe what he's talking about as he goes on there in verse 20 and he says but our citizenship is in heaven and literally what he's saying is that they those that we follow know that we are ultimately part of a greater governing authority the word citizenship there literally means commonwealth or or governing authority we have a governing authority in this united states it's it's our our Political system. It's those that are our congressmen and senators and leaders and all of that. But what Paul is saying here is there is a greater commonwealth that we are a part of. There is a greater governing authority, and we are ultimately under that authority. Now, there's some distance. That authority lives off over there, and we are here. But it is to that authority that we live our lives. It is to and for that commonwealth, if you like, that kingdom for which our lives are lived. Now, Peter talks about this. He says it a little bit differently. When he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desire which wars against your soul. Live such godly lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Beloved, every single one of us is a resident alien of this present system. And we are ultimately under the authority of a greater governing authority. Paul talks about that, and he, he, he talks about it here when he says that our citizenship is in heaven. And to us, that doesn't sound all that, that amazing. It does in terms of theology, but in terms of our culture, that's not a big deal. To the Philippians, this was a major deal. For you see, the city of Philippi was declared to be part of the Roman Empire, and anybody who was an official citizen of Philippi was an official citizen of the Roman Empire. That was a unique honor that was given to the city of Philippi. And the reason why is the city of Philippi was was founded by veterans of Caesar's wars. And so in honor of what they had done and in honor of their service, he declared that those citizens of the city of Philippi were considered citizens of Rome. And though they lived in Philippi, they had a greater governing authority, a greater commonwealth of which they were a part of, and that was Rome. And to them, that was a great source of honor. In fact, they would fight among themselves to decide who had the greatest citizenship in Philippi so that they could say they were the better citizens of Rome. Paul takes that image of being under the authority of a distant preeminent governing body in their lives and says that's what the Christian life is like. Yes, we are part of this world. We are part of this nation. We are part of this county, Bucksmont. I I really don't like that word. Um, You know, Bucks and Montgomery, whatever. Um, You know, we're under that authority, of course. But there is a greater, preeminent authority to which we are submitted. Now, as Paul develops that, we need to understand that though we are governed by a higher higher authority, we are called upon to honor our place of residency. I live in Sellersville. There is a governing authority in Sellersville. And, you know, we were thinking about making some changes to our basement. I have to go and get a permit to do some of those things. I need to be obedient to the authority that God has placed over me. I need to be concerned about Sellersville as a community. I need to care about it. I need to care about Bucks County. I need to care about my country. I need to care about my community. It's not like I'm so much in heaven that I don't care about now. That's not what Paul is saying. In fact, in the Old Testament, when the nation was taken from Jerusalem and taken on to Babylon, and they were about to live in exile like we live, in exile. We live apart from the country that we are ultimately going to. Jeremiah says this, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters, Increase in the number, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Pray for our country, of course. Pray for the upcoming elections, of course. I am a politiophile. My season of thrill began last Thursday at the debates. I recorded them all three hours. And I watched them. And I will watch every debate. And I told my son, I said to him, gee, I think I yell at the TV more during these debates than I do during football season. And my son looked at me and said, I don't think it. I know it. (laughs) You know, pray. Pray for your communities. Beloved, as followers of Christ, you ought to be having an impact in your neighborhood, in your community. You ought to be making a difference. But there is something we're always aware of. We used to sing it this way. This world is not my home. I'm only passing through. We are passing through and we need to be good citizens. But Paul wants us to understand this. But it is only to that greater governing authority that we are fully, 100%, unquestionably submissive. In the world, human governments, human authorities will at times make mistakes. And ultimately, we need to be certain that it is to that greater authority that we are fully submissive. Now the problem is that there will be conflicts that arise. There will be times where the government may ask me to do things that violate that standard. Now I know we're in a lot of debate right now over the whole gay marriage thing and should you bake the cake or shouldn't you bake the cake and, and those are legitimate questions those are legitimate concerns and that's part of this struggle you know should Christian colleges pay for um, medical care that in, involves you know abortifacias and, and other ways of, of ending a pregnancy what kind of stand do they need to take that's this struggle And we need to ask God for wisdom. What, what happens if the church is said and told, you must perform a gay marriage? Some of you may know about the Manhattan Declaration. It's a declaration by many churches and pastors where they've signed and said, we will not do it, even if it means jail. We will not do it. We may need to be wise. We mean him to show kinds of wisdom as our our culture moves in those directions. Conflicts will arise. And in fact, right here in the text, there is conflict going on. We don't catch it because we don't live in Philippi. We don't live in the Roman Empire. But as the the Philippians were reading through this, and they were reading these phrases, they were going, ooh, ha, ouch. Paul begins there by saying we have a citizenship that is in heaven. We have a governing authority that is higher. And we eagerly await a savior. There is one called the savior in the Roman culture. It wasn't Jesus. His name was Caesar Augustus. And one of the titles that he went under was Savior of the World. Because he brought peace and order after the civil wars that were taking place in the Roman Empire. He was called the Savior. A Savior. Paul creates a cultural clash when he says, "Uh uh-uh, Caesar's not the Savior. Ultimately, that's Jesus Christ. Paul was saying to them, you need to think differently than your culture. We looked at this last week when we talked about those whose, whose God is their colon, their, their, their inner parts, their emptiness that drives them Our world is driven in our culture by its emptiness trying to satisfy it through selfishness and nihilism and and sensuality and and all the things that we try to use to, to satisfy the emptiness of our souls. Paul says we need to be as believers in a different culture. There's another cultural clash that Paul demonstrates as he goes on there, and he says that our Savior is Jesus Christ. Who is Lord? Lord Jesus Christ. And none of you went ooh. But the Philippians did. For every Roman soul, every Roman citizen, remember, pride in their Roman citizenship, had to declare Caesar is. Paul says we live differently. Our ultimate Lord is Jesus, not Caesar. During the reign of uh, Diocletian, thousands of Christians were killed because they were given the choice. Declare Jesus as Lord. Declare Caesar as Lord. Life, death. Paul says our ultimate authority is Christ. When we can live in submission to this world without violating that higher authority, do so with gusto. But when there is conflict, we have a higher authority that we are responsible to. As we sometimes live in that conflict that might develop, We are to live as proper representatives and ambassadors of our sovereign. Not with anger, not with rage, not with hyped-up rhetoric, but simply to say we live with a different mindset. And here's how we will live. That's what we're called to be. See, this, the, 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 the real bad part, the sad part, isn't that the world is falling apart. That's reality. Is that sad? Yes. But it's that we're following their example. We need to live differently. We need to have different standards than, than selfishness and self-centeredness. It's Christ and, and our Lord that is at the center of our lives, for whom we live. We are to live other-centered lives. We are to live crucified lives. Not the kind of lives that our world calls us to. We're to be good ambassadors. Second Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 20. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. We need to live like Christ and show the world there's a difference. One that is winsome. Again, that's a word we don't use anymore. I love that word. It's done in a way that will win some over. Not beat them over the head. We need to be making our appeal. That God has made things right. We first do it by living differently. And then as God gives the opportunity, we tell them what the difference is. I was speaking to somebody this week. I don't remember who. But they were just saying how they came to know the Lord because they were interacting at work with somebody. And they just kept thinking in their head, that person is different. Why are they different? I want what they have. That's what we're called to do, to live as representatives of that authority in this world. But something else about eternity, and this is the part I didn't get as a kid. Eternity, heaven, is not some ethereal floating around on clouds you know, with a, with a cigar hanging out of my mouth and playing a harp. Eternity is this. Eternity involves the recreation. That can be recreation or recreation. There is recreation of all of creation. The governing authority comes to dwell on a new earth. It isn't so much that we go there. That's temporary. That's until the Lord returns. But when the Lord returns, that comes here and it's all new and all of the thrill and all of the joy and all of the wonder of being a part of God's creation and being co-sovereigns with him and, and being able to be part of what God is doing and God shares his authority. God shares his rule with us. We get to enjoy that for eternity. I think part of heaven is co-reigning is is being kind of his ambassadors in a recreated perfect world. My view is some of us will be over galaxies and some of us will be over planets and some of us will be over solar systems and you know it may be that we get to sort of change things. I don't know, but it's that kind of wonder. Not room, room, You know, Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 23. The creation waits in eager expectation, the longing inside of us that longs for more. Eager expectation for the Son of God's God, sons of God's. God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration. Creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. What will creation be like when it is freed of all hindrances? You can plant a garden with no weeds. <laughs> Some of you are going, yes. I don't know, do you fish and every fish bites? (laughs) I don't think so. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, we feel the emptiness, we long for more, we long for the thrill and the joy of eternity, we long for what God has planned beyond what we can comprehend. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly and we await eagerly for the adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's more, beloved. So much more. At the very end, at the book of Revelation, as John is writing on the Isle of Patmos and in, in um, Exile, He writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. It's gone. But notice, I don't go there. We do when we die, we go into the presence of God. But ultimately, it's not that we go to heaven. Ultimately, again, understand, this is after Christ returns heaven comes here god's presence is visible in all of creation the other night many of you know i I suffer with with insomnia every so often and the other night i found the one advantage to having insomnia i got up and watched the meteorite shower you know and i was i was sitting out there and kind of watching the meteorites come down, and, you know, about once every so many minutes, sometimes there'll be two or three of them, and it's kind of fun to be out there watching. them. I thought, you know, I can get up and watch this wonder. There's a day coming that every time we rise up and we look outside, we won't just see shooting stars. Are there shooting stars in eternity? I don't know. But rather than being surrounded by the night, I'll be surrounded by the glory of God. And it will be visible in the midst of creation. And so John writes, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the very essence of heaven coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. He recreates and comes here. And we dwell visibly with him for the rest of eternity. And all of it's wonder and glory. See, we need to understand. We need to so get our theology straight. Eternity involves recreation and transformation. Creation is recreated. It starts all over. It's burned away and it begins anew. But I'm transformed. I still stay me but without the baggage, without the junk. My body is transformed from this thing with all of its struggles and hurts and pains to a different type of body. That's my, it's the same body. It's just transformed. It was so amazing. Paul can't quite describe it. First Corinthians, he, he talks about the mortal putting on immortal and, 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 you know, and, and he goes back and forth and he says, there's something different. He talks and Paul talks about the, the seed that is planted and the tree that comes forth. It's kind of like that. And Paul says, it's so wonderful, but, but we are transformed. Please, let's get our theology straight. We will not meld into some ethereal life force after we die. It's not kind of the the Eastern mysticism where we sort of become part of the eternity. (laughs) I'm part of God. Or, or, Or Star Wars, the force. No. I live eternally. That's what Paul says when he says there, and and we eagerly await our, our citizenship, which is in heaven, and we eagerly await for the Lord from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies, our bodies of humility, so that they will be bodies of glory. There's a transformation. I change. We will not be disembodied spirits, you know, with robes and harps. Broom. Now, there's a question as to what happens between death here and the return of Christ, you know. I don't think we sleep, the word sleep that talks about believers sleeping just is a euphemism that talks about the fact that, you know, we wake up, there's something beyond it. I don't think soul sleep, there. we may live sort of as kind of our identity, our soul for a while until we're new bodies. We may have a temporary body in heaven. No one's really sure. But that's not our eternal existence. Beloved, we do not become angels. I will never yell at you. But if I hear you say, when so-and-so died, now they're an angel in heaven. No, they're not. I don't want to be too restrictive. What happens? We, our bodies will be transformed. They will be changed. Now, you have to understand that word body. The idea of soma. The word body speaks of the whole person. Humans are body creatures. Too much, you know, Greek philosophy kind of got into the church where we think about the soul and the body and, you know, the body is bad and the soul is good. And, and no, in the Hebrew mind, it was one. You are you, body, soul, and spirit. You, you don't divide them. Yeah, they're sort of different aspects, or, but, but it's you. Flesh is different. Fleshes are bent, when it's used in the negative way, towards rebellion against God. But the word that Paul uses here is not flesh. It's soma, it's body. We need to understand that we will be transformed from people who have bodies that are adapted to life of humility, life in this world, life that is temporal, life that is a struggle, life that is a difficulty. That's what this Soma was created for. But God has a Soma, a body, a, 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 an existence for us that is prepared for glory, that is ready to live in the glory of eternity. This one, this body, this soma, that's part of me. The me now, I will die unless the Lord returns. And I feel more and more of that every single day. I was really upset. I was driving and the sun was coming in through my sunroof on my hair. And I was looking in the mirror and I thought, oh my goodness, I'm almost white. Getting older. I don't know what that soma will be. I don't know what age it'll be. I don't know what weight it'll be. I know what weight I'll choose. I don't know what it'll look like fully, but it'll be prepared to live in glory. And here's the other really cool thing. It'll be a body like Jesus's. Do you realize the second person of the Godhead the son of god will exist throughout all of eternity in a body now it doesn't sh- doesn't hide his glory like his body during his incarnation and that's the kind of body we're going to have that lives forever that has all the wonder of what God created us to be and beyond what we can even imagine. C.S. Lewis in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, talks about the fact that if you saw you in your glorified body, you would be tempted to bow down and worship it. And then you'd have the reaction that the angels had when anyone tried to worship them. They went, no! It'll be that glorious. Again, Paul says it this way. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This body made to live in this temporal existence can't inherit what eternity is like. It needs to be transformed. I need to be transformed. I need to be changed. It began when I placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It will continue as I live before God if I die until the time he returns. And it is fully, fully realized at the return of Christ. Nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We will all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. They will have that new body that is transformed. And we who are left behind will be instantly changed. Now that's cool. We don't have time, but that's cool. For the perishable must close itself with imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And then the saying that is written will come true. Death is gone. It's wiped out. It's swallowed up in victory. Question. Who do you know that lives like that? Who do you know that tries to live in that way? Who understands that life is beyond just what's here? Another question. Do you live that way? To be an example to others? For you see, as Paul wraps this all up, what he is doing is he's saying, Beloved, Emulate those that live this way. And the other challenge is, be one who can be emulated because you live this way. Now, chapter 4, verse 1, we're going to look at just for a second. Because Paul says we are motivated towards faithfulness most effectively by the quality of relationship with others. Paul ends this section in a most amazing way. We'll look more at it next week. When he says there in chapter 4 and verse 1, these words, Therefore, my brother, you whom I love, you whom I long for, my joy and my crown, the one that I call dear friends, live this way. The context that Paul motivates obedience is not guilt, is not shame, is not pressure. It's love and relationship. Paul is about to move from the didactic, the teaching, to the praxis, the practice. But before he makes that change, he says, here's what I want to to motivate you. How much I love you. And how much I long to see what is best for you. That's what motivates us. But why do we live in community? Why do we put up with the struggles of church life? Because it's here in those relationships and those interactions and those rubbing up against each other that we learn what it means to be faithful and are motivated to do so. We're motivated by our love for others And their love for us. Find those who live in eternity. Build a relationship with them. Learn from their example. And allow God to make you the kind of person that can pass that on to the next generation. We live with eternity in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what's placed here, for what Paul talks about. An eternal existence in your presence that begins at the moment we trust your Son as our Savior. We put our faith in the fact that Christ died for us. Father, there's a standing invitation each Sunday morning for anyone who's not certain of that relationship to speak to me or someone else about how they might know for certain that their faith is in your Son, and that eternity is theirs in your presence. Father, we pray for those of us who have that relationship and are certain of that, that we might live as those who are eternal creatures, with a growing understanding of what that means in our lives. We ask it in the name of your Son. Amen.